Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's, uh, let's see, Sunday, late afternoon. My hand is just killing me, so I might be uh, stopping for a minute or two. I don't know, came down with something. Um, I hope it's not arthritis. But anyway, I want to do uh, the last Hoffman installment about uh, Hoffman Part 5. Uh, I'm glad there are people that are interested in it. They're writing me about it. And uh, this last podcast is being sponsored by the Beiches, who I realize... From Stan, Mr. and Mrs. Stan Beich from Greenspring, who now, I didn't realize they made Aliyah. They live now in Eretz Yisrael in Ramad Beit Shemesh. Very nice. And they tell me that they're listening there. So that's really nice. Uh, thank you. And I hope uh, the Aliyah is working out. Now, um, I just had a busy week. No, no reason uh, to bother with my stuff. Here we go. Um, as I said... I was going to do one last part about Dorothy Alvin because he's so rich and multifaceted. And that is the most technical of all. And I'm not 100% sure how to do this because I always got to be careful not to get too boring or technical in these things because you lose people. Plus, it's a complicated field. And I'm not the world's expert on it. And that's the matter of Shalokha. If anything, Dorothy Hoffman uh, is perhaps within the narrow world of Mechkar and all that, and by the standard of the 19th century, because now we're farther ahead, is year 2022. There's still, he's unique because nobody else did this kind of thing in that way, nobody of his stature. And that is to be a kind of a, a, a investigator, even an Indiana Jones type, of the Medr Shalocha. I'll tell you what I mean when I say that. I talked about it a little bit before, and... Uh, what we're dealing with over here is the history of the Toshal Shabal Peah. I'm not going to repeat what I said last time, which is before Yantar. seems like a long time ago. But there's no such thing, perhaps, for a firm person, no Bible criticism, but there is Mishnah criticism. You see what I'm saying? In other words, not criticism in the scientific sense of evaluation. I don't want to repeat. I already talked about that. But there is, in other words, what you and I call the Toshal Shabal Peah, is today a misnomer in the sense that they're books, they're texts. Now, there's a whole history of how it developed. Ace lost Hashem Efer Torah, etc., that what was originally not supposed to be put in the form of a text came to be, and uh, the classic description of this is the Garis Shvirgon, which Hoffman uses a great deal. Anybody in the field has to do that, unless you're, you know... Unless you disbelieve in sugar, that's uh, like the more, you know, uh, non from and so forth. Uh, and I just did the Gary Shear going on part of it in my show on Shulis Night. It was uh, fun. Because now we have the art scroll that I did, and it's easy to use because people have translation. Now, um, in there, we're asking ourselves the following question. This is Hoffman. How did it happen... They went from a Torah pad to a bunch of books. And there are all kinds of questions within that. In other words, when Rina Nossi put together the Mishnah, did he really write it down as a text? Or was it like griots in Africa? You just memorize it. We call ton of debate so-and-so. You just literally memorize the words. And so a person had to memorize Shisha Sidra Mishnah. I know there are some people who do it, but I mean, that's really quite a task. Or maybe there's some opinion in the middle which says, you had a text in case there was any issues, but you didn't look, you're not supposed to look at it, except when some question came over whether you have the right gears or not or whether you're reciting it right correctly or not. Somewhat analogous to the master copy to save return that once upon a time they used to have in the base of Migdash. Remember? You know, from Moshe Rabbeinu. That you're, you're, you know, you're in the Kosh Kadashim actually. 
and you only use it when it's absolutely necessary. Like when somebody who tried to make a play on the on the words. I'll give you an example. Suppose the tribe of Reuben said, in my copy of the Sefer Torah, it said Reuben should get 90% and everybody else should get 10%. He said, whoa, let's pull out the original copy from Moshe himself, the master copy to keep everybody honest. And you'll see it doesn't say that Reuben should get 90% of the Karka in Israel. You know, that kind of thing. So one way of looking at it is to say that they eventually composed written texts, but they were really not to meant, you weren't supposed to use them, you were really supposed to be um, I don't know, you know, there's arguments for it and against it. I don't want to go into all that now. But we're now in the world, and Hoffman was in the world, of trying to figure out, I think pretty much for the first time in a modern scientific way, um, how exactly did this process in, it, it develop that you started with uh, an oral tradition. And when I say oral tradition, as I've said many times, tell me what a yeshiva was when there were no books. And yet the Chazal talk about yeshivas, and if they're not being anachronistic, then what did they mean? You know? Like, what does it mean? No, it's how did one study Hilchah Shabbos in the time of uh, Eliyahu Navi or something like that? And there was a way, but it wasn't the way that we have now, which is you learn texts, you know, the Mugganah from this, that Mishnah, and so forth. It didn't exist. <clears throat> uh, it's even more interesting in the sense that the theory of the Torah is really that you're not supposed to have a text because that would tie the hands of the individual posate. And it's supposed to be that you have nothing tying his hands whatsoever. So he should be able to tell somebody when circumstances warrant, you go eat a ham sandwich or something like that. You know what I'm saying? I'm talking about David Melech. I'm talking about Ezra Sofer. You know, they wouldn't do that stomach, but when, when, when it was necessary or fitting, they'll, they'll, they'll do things like that. That's the Torah Shabbat path. Once you have a text down, it's much, much harder to do that. Although, we look to big postkin today, the biggest of the biggest, to do that rarely. <clears throat> rarely. Now, in the case of what Hoffman was interested in, since he was, remember, I told you before, he was part of the Wissenschaftler's YouTube. In other words, this whole movement of scholars to study the history of how the Torah Shabbat came to be, meaning how the texts, physical texts of the Talmud Babu, Yushalmi, the Tosefta, and all the rest of it came to be. Hoffman didn't start this. The non-form actually did. Especially in Galicia and other places like that. Uh, there was a whole group of them. He's from that group, but he's the firm one. In other words, he'll critique them and he'll argue with them when he thinks they're wrong. On the other hand, <clears throat> he won't argue when he thinks they're right, which is his style. The fact he was willing to do it is what ticked off Sans Revel Hirsch and ticked off the Doris Rishon. Okay, I get that. But Hoffman said, I'm doing it my way. Now, if he was writing, as I told you in the last podcast, about the history of the Mishnah itself, what you and I called the Shisha Sidra Mishnah, so he was also intrigued <laughs> by the historical question of what exactly existed before the Shisha Sidra Mishnah, and he said, <clears throat> basing on the Shri Gong, and on a certain type of common sense, certain type, that the original way that they used to learn Torah uh, was the Medrash system. No, it was based on the Pesukim. From the Bays and Bracious, you learn this. From the Gimel here, you learn that. <coughs> from the Xerah Shabbat, you learn this. You know, from Akal B'chum, you learn that. In other words, the Chumash itself, and only the Chumash, <coughs> is the source of all the laws. As I told you, there's a a uh, uh, difference of opinion which doesn't matter about, you know, did Hashem tell Moshe Mamish, look at the extra hay, look at the vav, you know, are those the words that Hashem told Moshe? Or did Hashem simply tell Moshe the dinim and Moshe or somebody else pegged it to the specific psukim or literary style or the types of things we call midrash, which you doresh, you pull law out of the uh, words of the, of the, of the letters and Pesukim of the Torah, and sometimes even the shapes. Now, uh, you know, this is what they call Tila Til and Shalachas and Kutzil Shalyud and so forth. Now, uh, it makes very good sense because what other basis is there in a natural environment to learn the 613 mitzvah, so to speak? It's in the Chumash. 
there are no halachas outside the chumash. The rice is in the chumash. So that's where you're going to get out of. So you might say like this, I read the Chumash, I don't see it. Okay, so that's where the Toshalah Pepor comes in. But it means that when you read the Chumash, the different parts, as you go Pasuk by Pasuk, or Indian by Indian, you pull the Halachas out of there. So in other words, when you get to Dvarim and you get on to Ben Surah that's obviously where you're going to Darshan and Pesukim and, you know, get this Halacha out of that Halacha. doesn't say in the Torah, that the kid has to be this age or that age for the Ben Saramur rules to, to 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 work out, but and you know the deep voice and all that, but you know as I do that by the time the Gemara is finished with it or the Talmudic sources, they will highly restrict and highly qualify the application of Ben Saramur, and we're going to say this part of Tershav Apet. They didn't make it up, part of Tershav Apet, or Chametz or Shabbos or Kashrus or Karbonus or anything <coughs> or anything. So, how did it happen? What what evidence, or what <coughs> uh, uh, record do we have of this kind of activity that went on for a thousand years at least, from the time of Moshe Rabbeinu on? I mean, a good twelve, thirteen hundred years. Uh, that's what fascinates Hoffman, and the others too, the conservative scholars and the people like the Krochmal and the others. It, it does fascinate them. In the Shreer Gon, it does say that um, after he finishes talking about the mission and all the rest of it, he's saying that the um, Sifra, I'm quoting now, Sifra v'Sifri, that what you and I call the Menesh Halacha, the Sifra and Sifri, Darshay Dekron Inun, okay? These are Midrashim on Pesukim and the Chumash. Vehechor Mizi Hochaz Bekroi. And they show where the laws are alluded to in the particular psukim. Now listen closely. Okay? Way back when, time by Shani, in the time of the first Chachamim, meaning before the later Tanoim, it was according to this derech that they used to teach. Okay? Which means that the style was, uh, I'm going to use the word Hershey, you know what I mean when I say that. You know, you look at the word, you see, you know, with the the the, the uh, syntax, and the Lila means this and that, you know. It reminds me of a very Hershey type style. That was the style of the Chazal. That's how they taught. It wasn't any one way. Different schools of interpretation, or different Mesoras, were around and had been. And, you know, they would say, now you're reading Shmos, you're reading about carbon Pesach, you know, this is how you, you know, uh, explain, this is how we halachically, um, which I'll say, apply the Pesukim, even though it may not say specifically, explicitly in the Pesach, but if you do Xerah Shav or something like that, you'll you'll see it over there. Um, so, whatever happened to all those teachings? <clears throat> whatever happened to them? Must have been millions of them. I mean, you're talking about a, a tradition going on from Moshe Rabbeinu down to, to, to uh, the generation of Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Kiva. A lot of Torah teachings. You get what I'm saying? Now the answer is, in other words, it's not simply Moshe gave down one tradition and it was passed down person to person and it was eventually communicated and put down in written form in this and this book. It's not true. As you and I know, there are machlokas on how to do the drushas all the time. And earlier, uh, scholars before Hoffman already noticed that there are like two or three, you can see certain tendencies in different schools of Chazal as you go through the various statements on Psukim out of which they pull out the halachas. And so Hoffman wasn't a machadish at this, but he was the one who developed it. And that is, uh, most famously, and today... Scholars aren't so crazy about it, but it has a lot to go for it. And that's the two differences between school A and school B, one of which is identified with Rabbi Shemal, and the other is identified with Rabbi Kiva. Okay? And as you go through a lot of what they say, not all, not all, that's the problem, but a lot, you, say, you, you get the idea of, I'll, I'll vulgarize this, 
that uh, Rabbi Shmuel is much more rationalistic, Rabbi Kiva is much more wild, vild, yeshivish, and mystical. And so, I've said this other times. And so, uh, as you do, and, and you kind of see it as a policy, going through various sukkim, one after the other after the other, and the drushas, and the halachas that come out one after the other. But the style of Bishmol is more what you would call down-to-earth. <clears throat> I would say my manadian, something like that. But is built. That's why, by the way, um, you know, the whole Girsa issue, is it Sukkot's Mamish or Anani Yaakovic? But Sukkot's Hoshavte is B'nai Israel. So, Sukkot's Mamish would be a Rabbi Yishmol type approach. A straightforward, Pashup Shah, you know, things like that. And by the way, doesn't take one bit away from the Hashibas of it. If you tell me you have to be in a Sukkot every year because our ancestors dwelt in booths, when that's very good. But Rabbi Kiva would say, Oh, Anani Yaakovic. It's already a mystical thing. Don't say anything in the Chumash about the Anani Yaakovic. You know, that they surrounded them on five or six sides and they uh, protected people from the elements and all that kind of business. More Midrashic, you might say. Um, now, I think the problem, by the way, is that in the Gersas, we talk ahead to Rabbi Kiva says, Sukkot's Mamish, and the Vilna Gon or some other people, I forget who, say it's a bad Gersa because Rabbi Kiva must be the other way around. You, you, I'm sure you've seen that. You know, they flipped the Gersas. But anyway... The point is that Hoffman develops this idea. He first wrote this up um, in the 1880s. So if you remember, he was moving from position to position until he finally landed that thing at the age of 30 with the Hildesheimer Seminary, where he stayed for the rest of his life. And I would say from 1873 to the early 1880s, he was concentrating, uh, among other things, one of his main areas of concentration as a scholar, I'm not talking about the shear he gave every day to several shear, and besides that, as a scholar, was uh, the Tanaitic literature, the uh, first layer of what you and I call the Shas, partially about the Mishnah, and that's what I talked about last time, but partially about this older form of exegesis in which you take the psukim and you pull the halacha out of them, um, and you want to say that this is a very close and sharp reading of the Hebrew language. Hoffman is a partial fan of the Malbim, by the way, partially, where the Malbim says, oh, there's 613 principles, you know, that uh, essay of his beginning of Ayikra, and if you know how the U-A-E-A-A works, you'll see that every drush in Chazal is very, is very logical, even though some of it seems to not logical, it's extremely logical for the Hebrew language. And if and if it doesn't seem so, you're a dumbbell and you don't understand true of writ. Don't tell me you're some modern uh, Moscow. I, I'm talking about the Torah is Lush and Kodesh. If you understand that inside out, over, under, around, and through, you'll see that all the drushes are, you know, Dafka. Hoffman doesn't go that far. But he likes the idea, it makes sense, that simply in a naturalistic way, if you live century after century in Bayes Rishon, period of Shoftim and all the rest of it, he looked at the Chumash and that's where you pulled out your halachas, based on Mesorahs, but also based on um, every generation, somebody might, you know, have something coming out of it. That would have to do, you know, uh, see the halachas. Now, um, it's, it's complicated. That's why I'm working my way, trying to figure out how to get this over to you. But in, after he wrote up the famous essay on the first Mishnah, he worked for a couple of years and published uh, a very interesting work called Einleitung in the Halachish Midrashim, Intro to Halachim Midrashim, which is in German, and it's really great because he starts you on a dumbbell level, and it's sort of like a, a, a manual. Every Yeshiva guy should read this, but it might shake him up a little bit, not because there's anything trafe in it, simply it's just, you know, they never looked at it from this angle. The uh, But it's in German, but it was translated by this uh, semi-muscular guy, Rabinowitz. I think he's the one, if I remember correctly, who translated Bacher also. All the works of Bacher. And it's called Mesilas the Torah Satanaim. Now, I just look, as far as they see, it's not on the Hebrew books. And I got it many, many years ago. I can't even remember. I had a student of mine in high school many decades ago who Xeroxed it for me and put it together and so forth. So I have it. 
haven't used it too often. It's called Mesilas Lotar Satanaim Shloshim Amarim. It's in this one uh, fat stapled together thing I have. One is Lecheker Midrash Atanaim. So that's how he, he calls the Hoffman thing. Lecheker Midrash Atanaim. Maybe that's on the, uh, maybe possibly that's on the uh, uh, Hebrew books. And the second one is from Chaim Shulr Horowitz, who's conservative. And the other is from Dr. Israel Levy, Ketom those are conservative. So Ortho, Hoffman is the Orthodox one. And the Chenker Medrashayatonim is basically an introduction for the person who, who, uh, who what is the Medrashayalocha. And he's the one, certainly in the firm world, who uh, approaches as a subject, which is a fascinating subject. Is a technical, and what it means is like this. Uh, I'll use dumb language. The Michilta the Sifron, the Sifri, okay, which I've spoken about before. Uh, if you don't know exactly what I'm talking about, I'll say for an umpteenth time that we have something called Medrash, but there's Medrash A and Medrash B. <clears throat> Most of you are familiar with Medrash A, like I said, the Medrash says or something like that. And that's the Medrash Agata, Agatha. That's basically, basically the. Um, Medeshrava and Medeshankuma, basically. And those are mostly <clears throat> stories, what you and I call Agadata. And, um, you know, interpretation of Pesukim, no, they're not halachic. There are, <clears throat> sometimes in the Medesh Agadata, you find halachic statements. There's a general rule, they're taken from the Gemara or something like that, and we don't go, you don't paskin from a Medesh Agadata. It has its own chashivas. <clears throat> After all, it's chazal. So the Medrash is very important. And anybody who wants to study Chumash, really, or Megillus, really, really, really has to make his business or her business to do the Midrashan. You really do. Because it opens the mind. You'll be surprised what you find there. Um, Rashi's on the Chumash is nothing but an anthology from the Medrash. Now, that's one kind of Medrash. However, there's another kind called Medrash Halacha which is much older, and is from the Tanoim times, and is written or put together around the time of the Mishnah, that would therefore be part of the general late Tanoitic enterprise of creating texts out of the many, many, many confusing uh, traditions of Mesoras on what the Chumash is saying in terms of Halacha. <coughs> so, the Mishnah is one attempt to do that. There are a lot of different opinions out there, and the Mishnah, by the time we're finished the several editorial processes, the last one, the last editorial process is Rabbi Nasi, and he took different opinions and he arranged it his way. He was working with earlier material, but he arranged it his way, and that's where you end up with something called the Mishnah, which is his take on the uh, different messiahs and arguments and uh, varying traditions. But it's not the only way of doing it. <clears throat> the Tosef is a different way. I'm not going to that right now. And a third way is <clears throat> to do it by the Pesukim. And that's all these guys who arrange in that Kufa, the Michelta, the Sifra, and the Sifri, and possibly other things. And so what I mean is, let's say for argument's sake, you're living in the year 200 CE. That's a round number. We don't know exactly when, but it's approximately this time. So let's say you're living in Eretz Yisrael, 200 CE. Excuse me. They were Tana. They were connected with the Tanoim. One of the things they were doing, for a whole bunch of reasons, I'm not going to go into the history of it now, is creating books, which never existed before. <clears throat> what, are the, what is the material of the books? They're not writing fairy tales, so what's the material of the books? They were taking the Brises and the Masoras and the different statements of earlier authorities... <clears throat> And writing them down. What, hop, plop, just write it down? Well, there's some kind of arrangement, right? You know, uh, just to put together a whole bunch of disconnected and discontinuous statements from different Tanoim will be kind of weird. Uh, there was some kind of literary aspect to it. The Mishnaya certainly reflects one literary type of aspect, you know, the Rabbi Nasi system. Uh, so does the Tesefta. And, uh, you know, the Mesechta system, in other words, you organize all the material around one subject or mostly, but that ain't the only way. Another thing that was going on at that time was people were collecting and <clears throat> putting down on paper uh, 
all those rabbinic statements by Tanoim and people of that nature uh, on halachas, but organizing them in the old-fashioned way according to the Pesukim. So that's what the Mechilta, for example, would be on Shemos. That doesn't mean that the the, the exact form of the Mechilta was, was, was said earlier. It's, it's, it's the other way around. They took statements that Rabbi Kiva may not necessarily have said when he was uh, learning this passage. He may have said in base Medrash, as would be reflected in the Mishnah, because a lot of times there's overlap between the Mishnah on the one hand and the Mechilta and the other things on the other hand. It may be that Rabbi Kiva said this statement on some occasion. Maybe they had a big debate in the base Medrash. But Lamaisa comes, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, you know that whole thing in that long Mishnah back and forth, uh, Yehoshua and Akiva, you know, they all call each other names. And Rab Tarfin, about the guy who was going, you know, with the machshire, uh, you know, what's it? Whether the machshirim is is okay on Shabbos uh, for the carbon pesach, you know, the abelus and all that. That long Mishnah. So that was said when it was said. It might you might find that statement in the Mishnahis. It's extremely possible you'll find the same statement. In the Michilta. What does that mean? The statement was there, people knew it. Rabbi Yulanasi was working with one editorial principle. He wanted the book without not to be connected to the Sukkim, as he put it his way. Whoever wrote the Michilta said, No, this famous statement, Rabbi Kiva, and his arguments, Rabbi Shu, etc., I would like to peg it onto the Pusik that's most negated to. And let's say, for example, it says, I don't know, uh, so you can put it over there. So what I mean to say is, it's a it's a post facto editing. It's not when the guy was learning it. Rabbi Kiva necessarily said this, and Rabbi Tarfin said that. They said it whenever they said it. The principle of editorial organization was to peg it to the pesukim, and for the sifra on vayikra, and for the sifriim by midbar and dvarim. That's what it seems. Now, um, on the other hand, it's also true that sometimes you'll find chalukim. It may be. Then the Mishnah, I'm just using the example I gave before, Rabbi Kiva says X, but when you look up in the Mechilta, on that passage, he may have a different, <coughs> something different. Hey, that's called the Tamba Babli. The Gemara has to work that stuff out. I'm serious. I'm not being funny. That's the goof of the heart of the Gemara. To reconcile the seemingly contradictory uh, kinetic statements of the same person or by, by explicit or implicit, that's the the enterprise of what we call the Gemara. But that means you got to know the both sources. Sometimes, <clears throat> you'll find some statement which is supplementary. The Mishnah says this, and in the Michalta, the other place, it'll say that. Oh, and the two fit together like a glove. In fact, if I didn't know the Michalta, I wouldn't understand the Mishnah properly. Or vice versa. You see? So there's no one, uh, uh, you know, Mahalik uh, to it. But rather, they both... Um, constitute uh, vitally important sources of what the Tanam were saying. Vitally important sources. And you, the student, have to make your business and familiarize yourself with both. Okay? Now, who wrote the Mechilta? Who wrote the Sifra? When did they write and all the rest of it? These are questions that I would say, and you would definitely say, oh, okay, you know, something back there at that time. If you're Dr. Hoffman, you want to know, inquiring minds want to know when, how, who, what was the context that was said? That's why he wrote his business of the Einleitung, the introduction of the Halakha Midrashan, in which, as I said before, he takes you through from the very beginning, you know, your basic terms, Tana, Amar, Mechilta, Sefer, Sirian, and all the rest of it. So he's writing in German for a person he's assuming, this, this is a good thing I'm saying, is a dumbbell, and doesn't and is not familiar with this stuff, which is true of 99.99%. And he tells you you know, the, the the results of his investigations, and the point I want to get across like this, you see over here, Rav C. Hoffman memorized all this stuff, and he analyzed it. It's not enough just to memorize it. Memorize it means you're a tremendous bulky, which he was, and you can just pull it out. I'm talking about the next level, which is, okay, it's memorized, and now you think on it. And this is what he did. He took a piece of paper, and he said, you know, how, how many times did Rabbi Kiva say this? How many times did Rabbi Tarfin say this? And, you know, let's cross-reference it. How many times do you do it in the Mechilta, Sifra, and Sifri? It's a lot of avodas perach. You see? It's hard work. And in order to be able to do it, 
Remember, this is before Google. You had to be your own Google. Yeah, and before you were able to do it, the person had to say, I'm committing myself to totally mastering Mechilta Sifra and Sifri and the Chalufa Girsis that are out there because you're going to do really right. So a guy like Kofi have to say like this, what is the oldest uh, copy we have of this book? It could be a Gemara. It could be a Mishnah. It could be a Sefer Torah. <coughs> These are Wissenschaft questions. Do you get what I'm saying? If you have a Sefer in front of you, how do you know it is what it is? You say, well, I don't know. You know they're, they're published. It must be a real thing. Okay, but that's dumb. You know, I'm asking a real question. I'll open in front of me now a Bracious Rabba. How do I know this is the real Bracious Rabba? Uh, what's the earliest edition of it? And what manuscript, because it used to be before printing press, is it coming from? And is it reliable or, or, or not reliable? That's the kind of stuff he had to know going in before he could produce his book on the Chaker Medish Atanoim, on figuring all this stuff out. Now, he agreed with and um, developed this idea of the two approaches of the Rabbi Kiva school and the Rabbi Shemal school. And he was very good at it. I just remember, you know, uh, in, I mean, a number of examples from memory that we stuck with me. Uh, one is, uh, here's the most obvious one, <clears throat> obvious one, that, uh, you know, Rabbi Kiva's every word is Dafka and Rabbi says, Dibber Tarkalosh What's the meaning of Dibber Tarkalosh Torah speaks in language of man. In the Middle Ages, the Rambam twisted its meaning for his own purposes. Not what it means in Chazal at all. The Rambam would say, the Torah uses human language. You know, in other words, we describe God. How can you even think to describe God? Or, you know, miracles. The answer is, you know, it's speaking in a in a human being way. So, in a human being way, works. You see, you know, it's not literal. So that's, that's a foundation of the rationalistic exegesis of Scripture. But in the Gemara itself, in the literature of Tanim itself, means that you have, quote-unquote, extra words in the Chumash, with the Hainu, that when it says, most Yomus, it doesn't mean like Rabbi Kiva says, most Bolam Haza, Yomus Bolam Haba, but rather, most Yomus, you kill him. Why does it say two yomus, most Yomus? That's how human beings talk. He will surely die, like we learned when we were in, in elementary school. Most yamas, which literally means he will die, he will die. Most, he'll die, yamas, he'll die. So in other when you have different Lashonas, they don't necessarily have to have halachic meaning, uh, which is kind of radical. Now, mind you, that does not mean Rabbi Yishmol would deny that it would have uh, midrashic meaning, mystical meaning, Kabbalistic meaning and so forth, philosophical meaning, but not halachic meaning. That's a, a gigantic difference between Rabbi Kibbe Shemal. Um, another one was Kol Parshish and Nishna, Lo Nishna, Al Mesfil, Davish, and which was, you know, you have a repetition of all the kosher birds and the trafer birds and the kosher animals, trafer once in Vayikra, once in Dwarm. And why do you do all that? So it must be, if it's repeated, there must be some Kiddush in each letter. That's the Rabbi Kibbe approach. If it's Ekin in the Chazer here, it's Ekin in the Chazer there. It must be telling something extra about Chazer. Oh, is why would you repeat it? But he says the Rishmal and his Talmudim say, you know, in in Dvarim, there's an extra there's an extra bird or something. So uh, that's why it's all there. It's a list which is a little more inclusive, which begs the question: So why don't you just add what that extra word was and leave out all the repetition of of the trafe animals that you already told me about? So you see once again. That it's a way of saying, look, you know, our nevis is our nevis. Our nevis is our nevis here and there. They're not telling you extra, anything extra. If the words are identical, if Aikra and Dvarim, then, then they're not telling you anything extra. If they throw in an extra bird, that's the Kiddush. So again, it's it's treating the text of the Chumash, I don't want to say disrespectfully, because we're talking about Rishmol here. It's ridiculous to say he's talking about disrespectfully. But he's not giving this kind of thing of, ooh, if it says it twice, it must be some super extra chedesh in. No. Um, a third example. I hope I'm not getting, I hope you understand what I'm saying. I, I'm not losing people in this. Um, this is nothing heavy. Uh, I've said again many times, uh, Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Shmuel says, 
You can't stop and do a Xerah Shabbat in the Velter, right? <coughs> oh, it says this word here and it says the word here. Different, we have the same din. That's ridiculous. It says S here. I mean, how many times do you say S? You know? How many times do you say Moshe You know, things like that. It's got to be more than that. So, um, he says you can't have Xerah Shabbat unless it's Mufna Mishnei Tzadadim. So, if you have it, let's an extra word. I'll just make up a word. If you have the word, you know, uh, Gamal. It says it here, and it says Gamal there. And you read the text here. Let's say it's in Vayikra, and you read it over there, it's in Dvarim. And really, you don't need the word Gamal, so it kind of stands out. It's Mufna. So if it's in this Pusik, extra. And in that Pusik, Dvarim, it's also extra. Okay, so it seems like the Torah is um, sending you a signal. And it's Xerah Shabbat. If you have the same word, and it's extra here, and it's also extra there, must be that it's there for a notice. It's at least plausible to say that it's sending a signal that there's some identical, identical character to both psukim. But Rabbi Kiva says, "Nah, you don't need to be mufna at all." So that's kind of wild. Does that mean every time he says, uh, you know, call, uh, you know, kaflam, it is it's telling you kiddush? Look, I don't know. Maybe Rabbi Kiva. I mean, that's not what Rabbi Kiva does generally. But I'm just saying, maybe they held that way, and that would be. Like I said before, a very respectful and mystical approach to the Chumash. If the Rabbani Shalom said this, it's not a word Salman developed around. It's not a rhetorical document. Masha Enkain, so every every little Nikuda has Tilatilm Shalachaz on Kutzel Shalyud. Rabbi Shemal says, at the end of the day, the Torah is a rhetorical document. That's not all it is, but it's a communication by God in the form of a text. You can't get away from that. It's a communication by God in the form of text. So it has characteristics of a book. Of course he's not saying it's not a book like anybody else. We understand that. But you can't get away from the fact that it has certain qualities of a book, of a text. And that's how it was communicated. Hashem has other ways of communicating. And, you know, maybe when he did the Kabbalah stuff, he did it in a different way. But as far as the straight-up halachas, the, the Torah has these rhetorical and textual uh, characteristics. So you're getting into nitty-gritty stuff over here, but it's kind of really interesting. And... Hoffman uh, wanted to explore all this because this is how, way back when, in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, Yeshua ben Nun, the Shoftim, Dovid Amalch, Elion Navi, Ezra, and so forth, this is how, you know, they used to do Limanat Torah. Limanat Torah. It wasn't Mishnah, according to him. Doesn't mean it's exactly identical as what you find in Michal Tzivur 3, because that's giving you the latest uh, opinions. You know, from that generation, of course, they're bearing an earlier Masorah, but that doesn't mean they bear every Masorah that ever was. And so my point is, when you get to this stuff, you just realize, look, a certain amount of information will be lost. That's how it goes. That's Esau, Hashem, Stuff is lost. It's unfortunate. Like I would say today, you know, it's a real bummer that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't have a tape recorder. Or better yet today... <coughs> an iPhone, you know, a phone. Because uh, then he could have recorded on YouTube forever the whole Mimer has seen and what exactly Hashem told him. And you and I would have bigger clarity what Hashem told him. But that ain't the way the good Lord read things. But it's not how it went. And so you're going to have a certain amount of unclarity and a certain amount of the human being, the Talmud Chacham, trying to put his part into it and try to extract from the language of the Chumash based on the Mesorahs but the Masoras are not exactly all identical, or at least somehow they develop not to be identical. The Rambam would say it's usually in the context of uh, new situations, new showers have popped up. That's a, you know, that's a theory we don't know. And Hoffman would dare say, or say like this, I want to know, you know how the Mishnah came to be, but I'm also interested, and you should be, as the student of Torah, of how the Midrash Halacha came to be. Because you see, the Chazal, the Amarim especially, held this in the highest regard because the Gemara quotes from these things all the time. And if you go through the history of Allah as it unfolded, uh, when you get to people like the Rif and the Rambam, there are plenty of Allahs that we do today that are not in the Talmud Babli and they're not in the Talmud Yishalmi. Nevertheless, they're in the law code to the Mishnah Torah and places like that. And uh, they're not in the Tosefta. But they are in the Michel Torah, the Sifra, and the Sifri. The tendency developed that if there's a statement, a din, uh, I'll make it easier, if there's a din in the Mechilter or the Sifra or something like that, 
and there's no contradictory statement in the Bible of Yushalmi, one of those places, then that's a din. You see, that, that, then we accept it as halacha. That's the way the system evolved. And so these become as much source of halacha as any other part of the Chazals, and therefore they're a basic part of Chazal. I repeat, I'm not referring to Menesh Agadotov, Menesh Rabbah, Menesh Achumah, that's a different thing. I'm talking about Mechilta Sifri. And the question of, you know, who wrote it, what tendencies do you see within it? Do you see two schools of thought, one school of thought, any particular approach, how in Terpesukim, all this kind of very interesting literary issues, which usually Yeshiva personally is, what do you mean literary issues? Torah is not a piece of literature. Well, Torah is kind of a piece of literature. You see? Uh, it's not literature like Shakespeare, but it's a literature. And Hoffman is interested in um, going through the nitty-gritty of it. And a lot of his um, essay in this intro to the Halakh Midrashim, which really is very good, you know, especially in Hebrew, anybody can read it, is full of uh, Makoras. Notice he'll set something up, but then he'll have 20 examples. You see what I'm saying? And so at the beginning, when you read what he says, I've seen this before. People say, ah, baloney. And then you say, oh, oh, hmm, I didn't know that. <laughs> you understand? Notice he's not shooting his mouth off. Everything he's saying is coming after tremendous eon and collecting, I'm sure he just like kept lists, like a yaka. He had a list of one example of this after another example, going through Ganshas, Bavli, Shamim, Chilta, Sifra, Sivri, and all the rest of it. Okay? Uh, it's, it's uh, I, I'll tell you again, he did a lot more than just memorize it. That's by me a lot if you just memorize it. But he, he, he analyzes it, you see? And therefore, um, it's a shame that this is not known. I'll repeat again, it has the misfortune, from the yeshiva point of view, of being a translation from the German by a guy who I think was a Moscow in Palestine in the early 20th century, I think. A Hungarian guy, if I remember correctly. But that doesn't take away from the quality of the work. And it's a good translation, and it's a shame. Now, I'm not finished. Hoffman published that in 1885, I think, when he was like 40. But he spent the next 20 years really into this subject, really into it. So here's a guy that was juggling balls in an amazing way in the intellectual sense, as far as I'm concerned. On the one hand, he was giving shiurim every day, on another hand, as I said before, he was on the base and he had the pasta in the shalos. On the third hand, he had to write all this stuff against the anti... I don't know if I talked to you about all these... Uh, every time somebody wrote something anti-Semitic, I mean politically anti-Semitic, that involved something in Judaism, Hoffman had to write an article or a letter to the editor to explain how the guy was full of it. He wrote like 600 of those. You understand? Um, then he had to write shalos and chubas, you know, for the students. And then um, he had to do his own work, which was these kind of issues, working through getting Klar, the Medrashe Aloha. And, as I said before, you have to do the Wissenschaft type work, which means, where are the original manuscripts that exist of the Michalta? Is there one of them? Is there two? Are there 50? Where are they located? Well, there's one in the Vatican. There's one in Oxford. There's another one in St. Petersburg in Russia. How the heck am I going to get a hold of that? There's one in Yemen. There's one here. You see the nature of the problem? It's a gigantic problem. Today, life is a lot easier. People have already done this work. They've usually brought these things together, or they've made Xeroxes or uh, microfilm. So in Israel, you know, you don't have to do the work anymore. There's a place called Mechon Latatzlum in in the Hebrew University, where they photoed all the uh, rare manuscripts and things like that. Until so you can go see it that way. Probably it's online for all I know. That wasn't the way it was in the 1880s, 1890s. They had to physically travel far away, and he couldn't do that. And so he had to get people to get him copies, and you hope the copies are right. It's interesting, and they're, they're little, little nitty-gritty things. So what I'm trying to say is like this. Had he wanted to, he could have published Kedush and Baba Kamba Mitzi and all the rest of it, because he gave Shiorman that stuff all the time. All the time. Whole Shas. He had a show called Shas Hebra, where they did more or less some variation of the Dafyomi. Not exactly, but you know, that kind of thing. Like from my childhood. But instead, he wanted to get in this area, which nobody has clarity in, and he wanted to be able to say to you, the reader, 
here's where the Michilta comes from, here's the Sifra, here's the Sifri, here's the oldest edition of it. Turns out there's two editions of it. They have a, a couple Chaluki Girsas on this and that and the other. You have to put out one edition which has all the Chaluki Girsas on it. Now are these Girsas just a stupid mistake of, uh, what do you call it, you know, the, the scribe? Or, no, they represent different shitas, and you have to weigh it through Savara, and in order to do Savara, you have to know Shas and Postgame and all the rest of it. Leave the Postgame out. You have no Shas and all the Chalufa uh, the, uh, in the Gemara and the Babli Shalmi and all this kind of stuff. It's a Vodas Perch. In the intellectual sense, it's really a Vodas Perch. I mean, I don't know if I'm getting this across, but the guy was something else. Now, that meant that he was in Germany. He made his business to do just what I'm telling you, which is to see, do I have the real Sifra over here? Are there missing parts? Does this have the totality of, you know, what what, what was put together 2,000 years ago? Or are there parts that we've lost? If they're lost, is it possible to recover them? You see, what do you mean? You know, they're not lying around in an in, in a, in a antique shop. No. Is it possible, liter- this is the Indiana Jones, is it possible to literarily recover them? And uh, this is just fascinating stuff. I'll give you an example I'm talking about. Uh, Hoffman says, if you go to the Micholta, we call the Micholta Rabbi Shmuel, and the, most of the stuff conforms to the Rabbi Shmuel system, which is, as I said before, um, and, and when he pulls the halachas out in terms of the drushas, are more uh, rational. More straightforward down to earth. Uh, not all, but mostly. <clears throat> on the other hand, he explains all this in the in the introduction of On the other hand, <clears throat> if you look at the uh, uh, Sifra, what we call Taras Kwanim, <clears throat> it's clearly going to be Kiva, that's what he says. And he brings many, many rise to this. Now you understand, in order to bring rise to this, you have to know, you know, uh, if we're talking about. Uh, uh, Baikra, you got to know your kachim very well, you know, Zvachim and Akas, all that business. Everything. Uh, and then he gives a valuation, what's the story with the Sifri on Bamidbar, on Dvarim. But he was always looking <coughs> to see, is this all there is? <coughs> uh, or <coughs> has the stuff that's collected in the uh, archives and university <coughs> libraries and places like that, the Vatican, as you call it, uh, have they been explored, uh, read through, uh, understood? Can we discover anything in there that will be helped us understand the Gemara today? And he became a big deal in this. Because I'll tell you again, first you got to know what stuff is, and you have to be able to read it all, which is, you know, chicken scratch, or handwriting's terrible. And you have to know shots to be able to say, oh, this is a different version of what it says in the, you know, in, in, in Mesef de Soto. You see, you're in the Tosefta over there. Or in some <coughs> Sifri or whatever. <coughs> Excuse me. And, uh, uh, I'm seeing how to say it. So, what he became famous for in the scholarly world was that he said, <coughs> you know, um, looking around through all this Midrashic literature, which is Midrashic literature, which most people haven't heard of. Certainly not in the Shiva world, let's put it that way. But it's Chazal stuff. So he's able to recover some, or claim to recover, some very interesting material. Now I'll tell you what I mean. Uh, there's something called a Medrash which most people haven't heard of. I remember when I was a kid, much much younger, we you know we had to get a... I think for my brother, a bar, a bar mitzvah a president. Well, the bar mitzvah president, older than me, uh, some kind of president. I said, get him a medrash. Maybe it was my nephew. That's it, for a nephew. And I went to the store at that time. They had these two big orange volumes, medrash I got all. I thought, it's just a large size medrash, you know? Uh, and it had uh, notes on it and stuff like that. Well, I was dumb. I just didn't know that there's something called a medrash I you probably haven't heard of it either. It's the name of a certain book. <clears throat> a guy in Yemen in the 14th century wrote a masterpiece, <clears throat> which I would, to, to try to get it across to you, I would say it's a Mayam Lois, but it's much more than that. It's that kind of thing. In which the author, who was a Yemenite, as they say, in the 1300s, he f- 
put together this apirish on the Chamisha Chamisha Torah, which is arranged on the Pesukim, and he like did his own Manish Halacha, <coughs> as it were, like he's his own Mechol to Sifra and Sifri. Um, but hear me out. Uh, and uh, and he also brings in stuff from the Rambam and some other people. And he presented it, he published it as a Sefer, which was extremely popular in Yemen. I know that's not most of us, but you know, they had big Talmud Chacham over there. Uh, it's, it's like cut off from the rest of us. And this became to be called Hamedish Agoro, and that became the most popular. <clears throat> Again, I, I'm using this in relative terms. That became like the Mayam Loes in Yemen uh, back in the 1300s, and people wrote Pirushim on it and things like that. And this Mechaber clearly had access to um, Chazal material that we don't have access to. <clears throat> Meaning it's lost. When I say it's lost, you won't find it in some manuscript somewhere. I'm dealing here with the world of manuscripts. Like I said before, how do you know when you're reading a Rambam is the real Rambam? How do you know when you're reading Rashi is the real Rashi? And how do you know when you're reading Gemara is the real Gemara? you got to do your work and go back to the beginning. And how do I do that? Okay, now you ask the right question. And you have to discover how to do that. And it has to do with the knowledge of where the oldest manuscripts are located, and maybe one or maybe many, and you simply have to take the trouble to travel to that place. Let's say, for example, it's the Vatican, or it might be in the Royal Library in the place of Copenhagen. I'm serious. Or places like that, the University of Leiden, and you hoped there wasn't a fire and the thing didn't get burned. They have to go there, and they have to let you read it. You know, you have to get in, they have to let you read it. And you have to read through all the different types of print that it is, you know, from the Middle Ages or whatever is older than the Middle Ages. It's a bummer. Now, but when you do, so you say like this, this is something that Claudius Roll doesn't even know about. It's been here in this uh, silly library in Parma in Italy forever. Nobody ever you know, bothered to do it. I'll give you an example. The Meiri, I mean, it's not the right thing. That's a reason. The Meiri was around in some library place in Italy. It wasn't published you know, until the 20th century, most of it. It's it, it, it's a treasure. It just wasn't published. <laughs> you see? I remember the thing, I've seen Hebrew class from the, the Ramak, Court of Hero. It's a major element of the Kabbalah. Uh, what's this uh, this long thing, Oratora, whatever it's called. You know, endless volumes on the Chumash. It was again in some library in Italy. Nobody ever bothered to publish it. So I'm dealing now, Hoffman's dealing with Tanoi Mamroim. And so you have to really, you know, do work around the world where do they have old editions? Some reliable, some not reliable of all these very old Tanaitic works. Uh, so this Medesh um, which is around, and copies were made. You know, copies were in Europe. It's not a bestseller. But copies were in Europe and in different libraries and things like this. And if you're super bucky like Hoffman in all this stuff, you'll say, you know, I'm looking here. I see this Mechaber who lived in the 1300s, who wove together very nicely, because Hagodah is famous for weaving together a lot of different sources, the chorus, very nicely, he obviously had access to Medrash Halachas back in Yemen that we don't have that are lost. We don't have them. And it seems like they're Baruch Samcha, that they're real. Oh my goodness. Uh, so we now have original Tanaitic material. Do you know what that means? That's like finding another part of the Chumash. <laughs> we know that it exists. Another Mesechta and the Gemara, you didn't know it exists. Now, you see, some people will be upset by that. Some people will be excited by that. <laughs> Depends who you are. So he did this in the area of Medesh and um, by looking through the Medesh very closely, and there are many different gears of it and manuscripts of it, he said, you can see over here, that there is another uh, Michalta. Hear what I said? The Michalta that we generally use, which is called the Michalta of Shemal. But there's another Michalta, which is from a, a Rabbi Kiva type of, of Talmud. And he called Michalta the Rajbi, Michalta Rabbi Shim ben Yochai, which he published. In other words, he took the pieces from the Menashago 
And he says, I identify these as pieces of a different version of Mechilda. What different version of Mechilda? You see Hoffman says, I guess, you don't know. We, uh, there were different versions of Mechilda out there. Different version of Sifra, different version of Sifri. Just because you and I haven't heard about them doesn't mean it wasn't there. This is the nature of the Torah. Unfortunately, in the Middle Ages, a lot of stuff got destroyed or lost. Um, so it's a remarkable kind of business. And he's famous, as I recall, for publishing, let's say, the Mechilta, the Rajbi, the first, one of the first editions of that. And also something he called the Medish Tanoim, which I actually have, and he would claim it's kind of a Mechilta and Dvarim. I mean, it's, it's in the old print, you know, I mean, it's fine. I'll be honest, I mean, I never went through it, maybe once, a little bit. It's very technical stuff, but it's halachic material from the Tanoim, when the Pesukim, the Stalin Medish Halacha. So basically what I'm saying is like this. Dorothy Hoffman, among other things, actually uh, expanded uh, the amount of Torah out there for people to inspect. The problem is, as often happens with these things, that it didn't penetrate the Yeshiva world. And here you have the Chazanish business with that other guy. I have to do him sometime. Which he found all this stuff from the Gaonic literature. But, you know, maybe... That will upset what this region said and show it's wrong or something like that, or affect the way the sugi has always been learned. The Chazani said something to the effect of, "We're not gurus it. I'm not. I'm not attacking it, but it's not something should be taught in yeshivas because if it was meant to be known, Hashem would have made it known, like he did with the Meiri and things like that. Um, you know, it, it, it's that kind of business. Uh, so therefore, everything I'm talking about today." There's no specialist, not to most people. And these books are only some once in a while reprinted in, in photostat form, uh, not in bigger form. And to be tell you the truth, uh, scholars since Hoffman have found more stuff and expanded, so they built on his um, findings, but uh, have expanded more. So, for example, if you're at all interested in this brand new Medish Halacha called <coughs> Medish Hagodol, but it's not a Medish Halacha in the sense... It goes back to the time of Tanoim. It was put together in the Middle Ages, but using a lot of material from the Mechilta Sifra and Sifri, plus other material that for some reason or other didn't survive in our published editions and the manuscript editions of which we're familiar. So if you're into that, so um, later scholars, including Steinsatz, by the way, later scholars, especially in the state of Israel, worked to put out better editions of this. So, as I was saying, if you go to the store today, if, if they still sell it, you get something called the Medish Agoro, which I think is 10 volumes, and they're fat volumes, and they have, you know, it's with the, um, what do you call it, the scholarly apparatus. So at the bottom they have, you know, Khalifa Gearses, and they have, like, important notes. So fully annotated kind of editions. These are things that come out in the world in Mechkar all the time. They're actually very, very good. <clears throat> Nobody buys them. Only specialists. They should buy them, and they're in every important library, you know. I'm sure they're in the Lakewood Library, things like that. But, you know, they, they, they're, they, they're not in the mainstream. You get it? Not in the mainstream. And in this respect, Hoffman operated in an area that was really scholarly, more than the mainstream. Hold on a second. Had to readjust this. Tell you the truth, I forgot what I was saying. But basically, I was talking about this world of um, of finding manuscripts and things of this nature, and um, a lot of what we do depends on that. But nobody sees, you know, watches that that part of the world. <laughs> nobody watches those kind of um, um, things taking place, uh, that kind of research uh, happening, especially at the level of Tanaim and Amoraim. Um, for example, do we know today? Is there possibly Something that nobody's discovered yet. Some earlier, uh, um, you know, ancient manuscript of, I don't know, the Talmud Bavli, whatever. Who knows? You know, I doubt it, but, you know, you never know. So he lived at a time when this stuff was, was really um, getting to be attacked, I mean, uh, investigated by a lot of, of uh, scholars. Uh, most of the people that did this were, were not from... That's the interesting thing. That's that. That's one of the reasons the yeshivas always had like a certain standoffish kind of attitude towards it. 
And so we have the irony that um, did a lot of interesting and sometimes good scholarly work, but the only people who could probably have any interest in it weren't interested in it. So in those, when these guys, let's say, for example, you're a big conservative rabbi scholar, late 19th, early 20th century, and you publish <clears throat> like some uh, really interesting research, who are you writing it for? The conservative, the Balabak, they read it, nothing. Yeah, who are you writing it for? Ten other professors? Okay, I mean, really, your natural audience should be the firm world, which there are hundreds and thousands today, many more than that, of people interested. Though. They're not government. <laughs> you see? They're not government. So that's the irony of, uh, you know, uh, what, what's the expression? Did the tree make a sound, you know, if nobody heard it? You know, that kind of thing. So that's what happened to a lot of this car stuff. Uh, now, to be perfectly fair, there has remained a small cadre of scholars, specialists, down till today, in different university departments and places like that. There's this role they have most, you know, Mossads of different sorts that, um, you know, are, are interested in it. So, so it's more than a few, but it's not a lot. Okay? Uh, in the state of Israel today, you have 140,000. I just read this figure the other day. 140,000 guys learning yeshivas, things like that. That's a lot. Um, how many people are in the whole Mechkar enterprise? Especially, I'm talking about Mechkar, scientific, the kind of thing that Hoffman is interested in. How many of them are there existing in the world of Tanar Mamarayim? You know, Talmudic scholarship and uh, old um, Gearses and things like that. No, it's Talmudics, as they would call it. Uh, not many. See, because that's the case with any academic specialty. Not many. So it's a funny, you know, kind of um, a business. But I wanted to get this across to show you what a many-faceted uh, uh, scholar he was, uh, even though uh, in his time, when you know, the Yekis couldn't read this stuff. I'll tell you again, I do recommend anybody's interest in whatsoever, see if you can possibly get a hold of this uh, Misilos Latoris Atanayim, that's what it's called, right? And Hoffman's single on the Chaker Midrashim, because it's written very clear. I mean, he is a fantastic writer in the sense that I don't mean I mean this in a good way, not a bad way. You read something from it's like reading a third grade uh, textbook, and that's very chashav when you're trying to get across, you know, all this complex business of the different, you know, how many different sifras are there? You know, there, there's a sifri and there's a, something called sifri zuto, which he found from his quotations in Menesh You know, it's it's complicated stuff, but he says it very nicely, very clear. Now I'll say it again. Uh, because this is the uh, Mechkar enterprise, we're doing as we scholarly research. So he and he was very humble too. He simply said, "This, this is the results of my research." Well, whenever it comes to any science, nothing ever stands still. So people come after him. Literally, do stand on his shoulders and build higher than him. That is true. And so, from a scholarly perspective, somebody who wants to know. More about the Mechilda Sifra and Hoffman is not the last word. But on the other hand, I would say he's the last Goro to do this. But again, he wasn't a regular Goro. Now, he was one of the people that started the Agudas Yisrael. <laughs> so, the original Aguda was a widespread kind of business. You had people of Chaim Brisker on there, but you also had Dr. Hoffman. You know what I'm saying? Those are two different, radically different worlds. Uh, and, that, and that's the Aguda, not the Mizrahi. So there is wide room within the world of Torah for people with different interests. We just don't see it too much because the main emphasis in the 20th century, 20th century sociologically, has been the expansion of the yeshivas. And I would even say very narrowly focused yeshivas. That's like a, there are sociological reasons for that. But, you know, in, in a uh, Torah world, which is dominated numerically, um, and it's growing, by the way. Listen, I just said a number that's crazy. And I saw this in Haaretz, so they ain't, they ain't lying about this. Notice, they're not the ones that are going to blow up the numbers, the opposite. And they said, um, there's 140,000 learning in the Haredi Yeshivas. Uh, so they're not even counting KBY, you know what I mean? They're not even counting the whole huge world of the Kippas Rugai Yeshiva. That's the whole world by itself. So they're talking about the Haredi. That's what they said. So, um, in a world of 140,000 of those, 
the kind of issues I'm dealing with over here aren't of interest. Let's put it this way. The Rebbeim and the Shivas don't push it. It's only for the weirdos who are interested in larger issues and want to think in a, in, in perhaps in a more um, historically sophisticated way. Um, if anybody's built like that and you're interested in the area of the Medish Halacha, which is, after all, one of the Iker branches of the Torah. I'll say it again. The Talmud, Babi Yishami, quote all the time from the Medish Halacha. From the Sifra, the Sifri, the Michalta, and so forth. Of course, Hoffman's coming up and saying, I guess, which Michalta are you talking about? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Which Sifra are you talking about? Sifra A, Sifra B. Um, you know, or are you talking about the regular Sifri or the Sifri Zuta? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that we don't see quoted so much because we usually stick with the Matbeya. You understand? The Matbeya out there is the quote unquote the Yeshiva should want. Uh, which is just interesting the way these things have played out. But I wanted to share that with it. I'm closing this down because I spent enough time with one person, even though I don't regret it. Uh, he's a fascinating figure, and I've only scratched the surface. Believe me, I'm not saying that to be rhetorical. There's a lot more than what I just said. But in the podcast, you can only you know touch on certain uh, certain things over there. And uh, after this, we're going to move on uh, to somebody else. But uh, I do thank the Baiches in Israel. I greet them and uh, all the old Baltimoreans who now live in Eretz Israel uh, and thank them for the sponsorship. I don't have anybody this week for the Parsha or the Haftari yet. So I hope some brave soul will step forward um, and help with that. But uh, with that, I close this down and wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.